It's Krista Bontrager, and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, it winds from Genesis to today. We're continuing our journey through the Minor Prophets, also called the Book of the Twelve. I don't think there'll be any other time this year when we cover so many books in one week. We'll be starting in Amos chapter 6, finishing that up, going through Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, And then the first half of Zechariah, all the way up through chapter 7. We won't be able to talk about all of these books this week, but I do want to highlight a few points of interest that we'll want to look for this week as we go through our reading together. Let's talk for a few minutes about the book of Jonah. Jonah is probably the minor prophet that's the most familiar to us because so many of us even heard it as a young child when we were growing up in Sunday school. And it's a little bit different than the other prophets in that it's more of a narrative style. It's more like a historical story rather than a prophetic oracle. So it's a little bit easier for us to understand. What I think is fascinating about the book of Jonah is that it's really a story of God's compassion for hated Gentiles by way of a very reluctant Hebrew prophet who really wants nothing to do with the ministry that God has appointed him to. Imagine for a moment that God had called you to go be a missionary in a very difficult country, a country that was our political enemy, maybe somewhere like Iran or Syria, somewhere that invokes a feeling of visceral, strong dislike, even hatred for this people. I'm reminded of growing up during the Cold War era, you know, Russians were the enemy. It wasn't very often that we heard about efforts to go take the gospel there. It was just that they were our political enemy and we wanted to crush them as Americans. Well, think of a country like that. That's somewhat like what it was for God to call Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And we read a lot about the Assyrians back in the book of Second Kings. They were the ones who ruthlessly swept through the ancient Near Eastern world and took captives, tortured their enemies, and relocated people to different countries. It was a highly disruptive 
way of oppressing their enemies. Well, these are the people, the evil, wicked Assyrians that God calls Jonah to go be a missionary to. And there's so many unique features of the book of Jonah, most notably that Jonah is being told to go to the Gentiles. In all the other prophets, it's a matter of the prophets speaking out from their homeland to their own people. Now, sometimes they would have oracles against other nations, but God didn't call those prophets to actually go to Edom or go to Ammon or go to Tyre and preach repentance directly to those people. But in the case of Jonah, that's exactly what he calls Jonah to do. And in my mind, I think that this is a foreshadowing of the love that God would pour out to the Gentiles in the ministry of Jesus and then later more fully in the book of Acts where Gentiles could become fully included among God's covenant people. A couple other interesting notes. Jonah is not calling the residents of Nineveh to become Jews. He's not saying, come over to the covenant God, Yahweh, and come to our temple in Jerusalem and worship him there. Rather, Jonah uses the more generic term for God throughout the book. He's basically telling them to repent. And we don't even really know what this repentance was, but we don't have a sense that they were converting in mass to Judaism. Rather, they were repenting of some sense of their sins, maybe from what theologians call general revelation. They had a, a sense in themselves that what they were doing was wicked and evil, and they were turning from their wicked ways. They were repenting of their wickedness, but the religious content of that repentance isn't told to us. And even Jonah has a hard time with the repentance of Nineveh, because Remember, these are Israel's enemies. He's been conditioned most of his life to think of the Assyrians as the enemies of God. And so then when they do repent, he isn't even motivated by love for these people at this point. And then God's got to kind of work with the prophet on his heart issue. And I think that this is a great illustration for us today that as we go out and we are bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to all people, that should also include our enemies, our political enemies, our moral enemies, even just our personal enemies. That when we look upon our enemies, we want to not see an enemy. We want to see a person created in the image of God and someone who needs forgiveness just as much as we do. Continuing the theme of prophets serving during the time of the Assyrian Empire, let's talk for a few moments about the book of Nahum. Now, this might be a more unfamiliar book to you. Nahum was a prophet ministering in Judah. We don't know what his hometown is, but basically he offers a prophecy of judgment against Nineveh. And again, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire for her oppression cruelty and idolatry and he's making a pronouncement of judgment against the city of Nineveh. 
Now, this is happening a little bit after the time of Jonah. The book of Nahum is happening more at the zenith of the Assyrian Empire, somewhere around 612 BC. And during this time in Judah's history, they're really what will be considered a vassal or a servant of Assyria. They're being pretty seriously oppressed by Assyria. And so it's within this context, here's this, this nation that is oppressing all of its enemies at will, conquering countries in mass, oppressing God's people. And all of a sudden, here's this prophet that says, you know what, Assyria, you're going down. Your capital city's going down. You're going down. God's going to judge you. But God's also going to save Jerusalem. Imagine, if you will, it's like a football game where one team is down by 60 points and it's the fourth quarter. Nobody thinks that team's coming back. They're thinking the team that's up by 60 points is going to win. They're going to crush the other team. And basically what Nahum is saying, don't be so quick. It's not over yet. The last bell hasn't gone off. We still have time to make a comeback. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. The historical background of the book of Nahum is 2 Kings 17 to 23. So if you want to flip back, skim those chapters briefly. That might help give the historical context for what's happening in Nahum. And once again, Yahweh is presented in the book of Nahum as not just the God of Israel. He's the creator of the universe. He is the God of the nations. And he offers judgment against the nations that go against his laws. The book of Nahum reminds us that really the essential character of the God of the Bible is a God of goodness and salvation. And we see this in the statements in Nahum that he will save Jerusalem. He will preserve his people. But he's also a God who is just as committed to justice and judgment. And that all of these things stand side by side. The goodness and salvation of God stands side by side with the justice and judgment of God. And isn't this a beautiful picture and precursor of what we see in Jesus' death on the cross? We have all of these ideas coming together in that one moment in time on the cross, the goodness of God, his salvation, as well as his justice and his judgment and his wrath being poured out on his son, all of these things standing side by side and culminating in the death of his own son, Jesus Christ on the cross. It is a beautiful, complex and mysterious thing to reflect on all of these things and how they all dwell in the character and identity of God and how they've been worked out through human history at various times. Finally, we arrive at the last three books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And these three prophets are unique because these are the three post-exilic prophets. So it might be helpful when you read through the book of Haggai to quickly look back and refresh your memory on the book of Ezra chapters 1 to 6 because that was happening at the same time as the book of Haggai. Now if you remember Zerubbabel 
led some of the Jews back from Babylon to the promised land. And one of the things that they did was rebuild the temple. And so the book of the prophet of Haggai is to that people that are trying to rebuild the temple. And at some points they've gotten a little lazy. They've gotten a little lackadaisical and he's calling them to action. When we get to the next book, the book of Zechariah, also a post-exilic prophet. And he's a little bit difficult to understand at times, even more so than some of the other prophetic books that we've read that have also been difficult. But this is probably due to the, the rather symbolic nature of Zechariah's visions. It's just a lot of complex prophetic eschatological oracles that are happening here. And so he's, he's giving these visions of the end times and prophecies. And you're, you might need a little help to negotiate your way through the book of Zechariah if you're trying to really understand what some of his visions are all about. Just a couple of quick observations to help you as you read through the night visions of Zechariah. One is that they're kind of arranged in a concentric pattern. So let me see if I can explain that. Visions 1 and 8, so that would be chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 6, both envision four groups of colored horses whose purpose is to go throughout all the earth. And this is a backdrop for building the temple. And then visions 2 and 3 uh, in a later part of chapter 1 and then the first part of chapter 2 and visions 6 and 7 all have to do with obstacles that are facing the restoration and the community as they are trying to rebuild the temple. In visions 2 and 3, the obstacles are from the outside. Things that are happening on the outside that are trying to disrupt the rebuilding of the temple. And then visions 6 and 7 are disruptions that happen from within the nation of Judah itself uh, that also are connected to slowing down the progress of the temple. And then finally, we have in the center of the circle, visions 4 and 5. They're the centerpiece of really the, the series of these visions. And these deal with Joshua and Zerubbabel's leadership, both with building the temple as well as in leading the community. There's a lot of other patterns I could talk about in Zechariah, but it, it's a little bit more complicated and detailed. But these are things to look for. Sometimes when you notice things that repeat, maybe put a circle around it. You're like, oh, I've heard that phrase before. The author said that in the last chapter. Those are the kinds of things you want to begin to attune yourself to when you're reading through a book. And the wonderful advantage of this week is that you're reading through so many books in one sitting. That's really the ideal way to read a book of the Bible because they were all meant to be read publicly to a group of people in one sitting, not one verse at a time or even one chapter at a time. So when you approach a book like Zechariah or Nahum or Obadiah or whatever, look for patterns, look for things that repeat, look for little signals that the author has left there to alert the reader of his style and, and his purpose and intent. Well, that concludes the points of interest for this week. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but next week we are going to finish the Old Testament and start 
the New Testament. So in a way, it's Christmas next week. Merry Christmas. I can't wait to join you again, and we'll see you next time. God bless. Yeah.